0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about clean water and how to get more of it to more people. And we're talking about it with someone who you might not expect to know all that much about the subject. Actor Matt Damon. But Damon actually has a lot to say about clean water here, as does engineer Gary White, his partner in the nonprofit Water.org. As you'll hear in this interview from the 2022 Crosscut Festival, the issue that fueled this unlikely partnership is a major one. According to a recent report from the World Health Organization and UNICEF, 771 million people on the planet Earth lack access to safe drinking water. And it is White and Damon's goal to bring that number down to zero in their lifetimes. What White brings to the issue is engineering know-how. Damon, meanwhile, provides a high profile as one of the most famous actors of his generation and certainly considerable connections and personal wealth. But he also brings his talents as a storyteller. And at the root of this issue is a story. It's a simple one. Every day, people around the world wake up with one primary task, securing safe and clean water. How that story goes depends a lot on what kind of assistance these people receive. And that is where water.org comes in. In this conversation with professor of political science and host of the Matter of Degrees podcast, Leah Stokes, White and Damon lay out exactly what the problem is, detail one major solution they've come up with that has helped millions, and share the stories of those their work has impacted. This conversation and all other conversations on the social justice track of the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Waldron, which would like to share the following message. Waldron helps organizations and people to reach their full potential, guiding human-centered journeys to organizational and professional success with courage, compassion, and discretion. Clients seek out Waldron when their brands are on the line for impactful board consulting, organization and leadership development, executive coaching, career transition, and career management. Waldron is proud to support CrossCut, a forum for truth and dialogue that increases knowledge, understanding, and compassionate participation. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay. On with the show.
0: So Matt Damon, Gary White, welcome to the Crosscut Festival.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Leah.
0: Well, we're here today to talk about your new book, The Worth of Water, our story of chasing solutions to the world's greatest challenges. The book chronicles your work together on Water.org, your nonprofit, which has brought water and sanitation access to millions of people around the world and I had the chance to read the book, and I must say I enjoyed it. It reminded me of another book by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which profiled the late Dr. Paul Farmer's work with partners in health. But your book, The Worth of Water, is not just a serious story. It's also quite inspiring and funny. So Matt, let's start with you becoming an advocate for clean water and a good place to poop is as you put it an unlikely outcome for a movie star so can you share the story of how you became passionate about water access including the role that your mother played in exposing you to the broader world
2: sure thanks um and thanks for uh for for putting us in the same category as Tracy Kidder's yeah. Pulitzer prize winning book which we love <laughs> and uh Paul was a friend of ours too It's a so, good
0: one yes yeah
2: um uh, but uh, but yeah, my mom had a huge uh, impact on me, and and uh, and I was really fortunate um, that she took me as a teenager um, to uh, places in Mexico and Guatemala, and uh, and where I got to see you know a, a different a different way of life. Um, but as I got into my thirties, and uh, I, I really started wanting to um, reengage with some of these issues, and and was lucky enough to have a Bono's organization data. Uh, would curate these trips that were almost like college mini courses. And so I went on one of those trips uh, with my brother actually to Zambia and spent, I don't know, it was a week or 10 days kind of traveling around and each day had a different learning focus. Um, You know, everything from microfinance to, you know, urban aids, rural aids, uh, when one day was dedicated to water and I became fascinated with it. And, and, uh, and, and that's what I decided to kind of put my time and energy into and very quickly realized that I would need to partner with, you know, that the issue was so vastly complex and, and interesting that I'd need to partner with um with an expert. And um, you know, and I looked for the the expert and the name that kept coming up um was Gary. And I always like making the joke. I the person wouldn't take my call. So then I went to Gary. <laughs> That's not true. (laughs) Gary was the first person that everybody talked about uh, that I ran into. And uh, and so um, in 2008, we met and in 2009, we we co-founded Water.org.
0: Yes. But Gary, you'd actually been working on this issue for decades by the time you, you met Matt. And so I'd like to know, too, about how you decided to dedicate your life's work to this issue of water and sanitation and what is keeping you passionate about it, even as you write, it goes in and out of vogue, in and out of fashion over the course of your long career.
3: Mm. Uh, no, happy to, to dive into that a little bit, a little bit of history, uh, because I've been doing this for so long. It's just like I can't imagine doing anything else, uh, but trying to conjure the, the early part of this was really uh. You know, I was drawn toward engineering, uh, but I was also drawn to social justice. Uh, like like Matt, my mom, Kathy White, had a lot of influence on on me and service to others as well. Once I discovered how how massive this problem was, and it seemed like a good thing for an engineer to tackle if you're focused on social justice. So that really drew me in. And I think, and that kind of leads into kind of the second part of your question, you know, what what kind of keeps keeps me motivated or or keeps the energy up. And I think it it is because of that constant search for the next part of the solution, right? The ultimate solution is everybody getting water and sanitation, but when you start to break it down, there's like multiple roadblocks along the way, multiple hurdles to clear and you don't necessarily see the subsequent one until you clear the one in front of you. So that's kind of what the journey in the book is about is like running into these these roadblocks and hurdles and getting over them. And I think that's what as an engineer and kind of a social entrepreneur, that's, you know, if if the 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 crisis itself and the senseless death and disease isn't enough for you, then certainly like the challenge of like trying to solve for the the puzzle, if you will, for how do you get the steps to to that ultimate solution? So that's that's what keeps me engaged at, at two levels.
0: So the book presents a really big idea, which is microfinance loans for water and sanitation access. And people probably heard of microfinance. Essentially, it involves giving small loans to people, typically in developing countries, at relatively low interest rates. Can you explain what that idea is and how you came up with the idea of applying microfinance to water and sanitation access?
3: Sure. If you're in an urban slum and you have to buy water from one of these tanker trucks that sells it, basically you're already paying huge amounts of your income, sometimes 25% of your income to get water each day and you have to get it, right? But what you don't have is enough savings to secure a long-term solution that might cost a few hundred dollars. So you can afford you know, a dollar or two a day but you can't afford that that ultimate solution for you. For many people, that's just a water connection to the public utility or buying a water filter or a pump and and a rainwater harvesting system. And so the concept is that people really want these solutions and they add value because they give them cost savings and they give them time savings, which can be converted into income. A story uh, of one woman I met that really illustrates this. Her name was Lena Riza in the Philippines. She was paying $60 every month to one of these water vendors. She took out a loan, got a water connection. Her loan payments now are about $5 a month, and her water bill is about $5 a month. So right away, overnight, it created $50 worth of value for her every month that she could then invest in her future. And then so you fast forward now, we have 150 of these partners around the world that are doing this. And they've now loaned about $3.5 billion in capital. Uh, to the household level uh, borrowers to, to secure water and sanitation,
2: and so that's what a bank understands. I loan you two hundred dollars. You buy a sewing machine. Now you can generate income with your sewing machine. That makes sense to a banker, but this this type of loan was an income enhancing loan, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't quite the same thing, and 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 to them, it that was a big that was a big leap. And so, so it took Gary yeah. just kind of the, that persistence and going, knocking on a lot of doors, getting a lot of doors slammed in our faces, and 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 eventually figuring out a way to de-risk it enough that they would all betting on this hypothesis mm-hmm. that because he had spent his adult life in these communities talking to people and listening to people, mm-hmm. he he knew that there was money being spent in this really inefficient way. And that if we could Mm -hmm. just nudge a market towards these people and get out of the way, then they could solve their own problems. Mm -hmm. And and the brilliance of it is that nobody's going to take out a loan for something they don't want. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like that traditional charity where people kind of come rolling into your town and, and, and go here, I bestow this upon you. You're welcome. And then they leave. And oftentimes, you know, for your students that, you know, half of the, of the water projects fail within five years, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. For, for, for really that's one of the big reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so this was a different way to, to think about it and do it and, 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 uh, you know, and, and, and kind of nudge a market towards people and then let them, mm-hmm. let th- give, let them, you know, claim their own agency and solve their, their own
0: problems this has been a critique of microfinance, as you know, that we are charging poor people and making them pay rather than giving them grants. And so, Matt, you talk a lot in the book about how your role has been a kind of communication role. So what did you think about Gary's idea when you first heard of it? And how have you learned to sort of talk about the idea with people to help bring them along with the logic?
2: Well, first of all, it helps to have these longer conversations, right? To help give people context because it turns everybody's stomach when they first hear it until you start to think about the people we've met who, uh, you know, Gary met a woman 15 years ago or, or more who, who was, who was paying 125% to a loan shark mm-hmm. to put a bathroom in her home. These borrowers, the people that are being loaned to are already paying mm-hmm. for water. They're already paying. And in many cases they're paying 10 to 15 times what the middle-class um, or people who who are who are you know the tourists in the hotels are paying right and and uh and and so and so that is really the you know what what people need to understand and and uh and and also that there that that there is some there's a, there's some dignity that comes along with um being treated as a customer and a citizen rather than a a, uh, a charity case. Though there's another concept too that I'll jump on really, really quickly about market segmentation, which is just that people aren't equally poor, mm-hmm. right? There and and there are people for whom charity will be ph- direct ph- philanthropy will be the only mm-hmm. solution, just because of where they are, where they live, what you know. Th- there's re- there's really no other way around it but there's a whole huge you know to the tune of uh, i think the un estimated 500 million people could be reached with this solution so there you know that's a that's a big uh, segment of the market that can that that can 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 be can be reached by just nudging this market toward them and letting them do the rest
0: the book also talks about a partner organization that you set up called water equity it's kind of the investment branch to most of your work. Um, Matt, can you explain what this organization does?
2: Sure. Yeah, that it was born out of a trip we were on about eight or nine years ago in India, and we were just kind of informally polling our, our partners, um, all these different microfinance institutions all over the country. We were traveling around and meeting with them, and, and all of them came back with the same answer, which was access to affordable capital. The demand was there. They knew they could get these loans out. They just needed more money in the system. And so that started a conversation with us about, all right, well, where can we find money? Like where is, and and we started to talk about social impact investors. And, um, you know, I said, I know, I personally know people who want to invest, but also want to feel like their money is doing good and, you know, I, so we we had this theory that if we if we started this asset manager we could try to tap into that to, in, into those markets and and we've been really we've had a lot of help from people partners at Bank and Bank of America and people who you know who know know finance a lot better than we do and you know this is the best way to help us scale and 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 the smartest thing to be doing right now and so that's uh that's mm-hmm. how we ended up with mm-hmm. the world's first uh water asset water related asset manager uh you know for for uh for the purpose of uh um access for for the world for world's poor so.
0: but you also sort of talk about how relying on billionaires right very wealthy individuals to fund this work has its own challenges
2: you want to ask me or Gary? I feel like I've been talking the whole time. I'm happy to answer that. Gary
0: gets it. the next question, I promise. Well, there,
2: there, it, it is it is frustrating to be at the whims and kind of at the mercy of, of, of you know, of, of people who might get kind of attracted to something else and, and 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 move off. And we've had those shortfalls in our budgets over the years that have no relation to how well we're doing because we've just been going from strength to strength. And so it feels like, you know, uh, budgeting shouldn't be a problem. But I remember being on a plane with Paul Farmer 15 years ago, and he was going over his budget. He was $10 million short, and this was, and he was, you know, the guy. And it was like, and I was sitting next to him on a plane and he's just doing the numbers. And he just turned to me and goes, we'll get it. We'll get there. We'll get it. He's like, no, no choice, but uh,
3: kind of um, optimism and, and to kind of keep pushing. For me, one of the realizations after kind of learning from people at the base of the pyramid, like what their demand is for water and their willingness and ability to pay for that, uh, at the same time recognizing that there was never going to be enough charity in the world to solve this trillion dollar problem is really what it is. Uh, and so those two things together kind of led to the water credit approach that we talked about, because you can, you know, when you're when you have an audacious goal like water and sanitation for everyone and you compare that to your efforts right now, if you're drilling wells one at a time, (laughs) you know, it just is never gonna happen. So you can bury your head in the sand and keep drilling wells, or you can like try to get the next breakthrough. The need for funding is growing and the wealth is growing, but the gap is not not closing at all. So I think it's, that said, I will also say, you know, uh, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, right? And I think that's what we're trying to do to show, that there are ways to think creatively, that you can create the financial plumbing that can connect the global capital markets with water equity investors, connecting that to people making a few dollars a day and everyone can win, right? And once you can make those connections, then that pool of capital is less dependent upon pure philanthropy and more on investment. And what we're doing with water equity is creating an asset, we have created an asset manager, whose management fees on those assets uh, is growing to the point that we can start to cover our own costs, that we can take some of those management fees and reinvest them back in water.org so that we are less dependent on philanthropy. So we have tried to kind of negotiate this really complex system of money and finance and capital and philanthropy in a way that's going to allow us and position us to be able to solve for the crisis.
0: Near the end of the book, you tell a brief story, for example, of New York City, I believe, passing a law that required water and sanitation access and what a difference that made. Mm -hmm. Gary, if you were gonna critique your own model, course, your model doesn't do everything in the universe. It does one thing very well. Um, But if you're going to critique it, which your model largely relies on the market, it largely relies on wealthy individuals to solve this problem. And so what would you say are some of the shortcomings of this approach or some of the more complementary things we also need to change? Where does the government and governmental policy fit into your story?
3: Well, you know, we self critique, right? And our self critique right now is that we need the government to engage more as we work to kind of stimulate this demand from the bottom up on the part of households that want to get connections to utilities and they have the money but through loans. It's like, what if the infrastructure isn't there for them to connect to? And mm-hmm. so we do see, You know, we, we work closely with government uh, in India, for instance, in Indonesia, and these small utilities to get the capital that they need to invest in that infrastructure. It's, you know, water supply through utilities is a natural monopoly right? Mm -hmm. So you have to work with government if you are really going to solve for this problem. So to your point, we're asking ourselves, like, what could we be doing more in order to ensure that we have a top-down approach to complement the bottom up? That's why, you know, the next fund that, that we launch with water equity will be an infrastructure fund. And Mm -hmm. that will look at not just lending capital to microfinance institutions for the bottom up, but it'll mean going out and searching and building a deal pipeline for utilities to be able to have the access to capital that they need to push the pipes into the more marginal neighborhoods. And as an asset manager, the covenants that we require on that debt that we place or that equity that we place, we can make sure that the poor neighborhoods are not overlooked as that infrastructure gets pushed out. So we see ourselves as partners uh, with government in that in that aim. They want to get water to their people, too, but they know that they're not getting the capital invested at rates that they need in order to, to make it work.
1: We'll be back with more after this message.
0: Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So, you know, your book really did convince me that water and sanitation is right up there as one of the world's greatest challenges and is particularly critical for women and girls. Um, and one thing I really admire about the work is that you've set yourself a task of solving this issue in your lifetime, which is a really big and bold goal, and I I just love that. Um, I have set myself that own challenge in my lifetime, which is to try to solve climate change. That's what I do with my work, and so I love what you're doing. I think it's fantastic, and so I couldn't help thinking in reading your book that climate change is going to make your goal even harder to reach. And you write about that in the book. So maybe to start with you, Matt, as you know, climate change is happening now. And I wonder what have you seen in the field when you're going on these trips in terms of how climate change is exacerbating water challenges right now?
2: We we kind of look off into the future and talk about what climate change might someday do to us, but this is something that people are feeling the effects of, um, right now. And so, and, and there's a very real crisis for 770 million people today who woke up without access to clean water and their day will be dominated by figuring out how to, how to gain access to it. So, so I mean, water is the heaviest commodity, right? And so if you're going to source it and move it and treat it, and then pipe it into a neighborhood in a lot of these countries where we, are working, there's, it's estimated that there's like 35% leakage and or lost to leakage. Uh-huh. So just imagine what that means. And from a carbon standpoint, that is absolutely wasted carbon, right? That 35% of the energy that it took to get the water uh, to a household uh, has been just lost. And, with, and there's zero economic value to that. It's not like somebody drove a car to some or to a conference and, and, and did business. And so you can kind of offset the cost of that, you know, fuel use or whatever it's, this is just completely lost carbon. And so again, with this top down approach, hopefully, you know, it's, it's about helping, you know, make, make these infrastructure more efficient and and better and, uh, and, and save some carbon that way as well
0: so the book really concludes with a staggering statistic, which is that your work together has helped to bring water and sanitation to more than 40 million people. And you write about how that's probably a bigger number, even when we're talking just a few weeks after the book came out. Um, So the scale of this work is truly impressive. Matt, you've already mentioned a few stories, but are there other stories that come to mind? Some of the people that you've met who have benefited from the work of water.org?
2: Yeah, sure. There's another one that uh, that I talked about in the book that that always stuck with me. Uh, it, it was about 10, 10 or 11 years ago in Haiti, and um, it was this girl that I met. We had just christened a new water system in her village, and, and um, I was introduced to her as somebody who would, up until that day, walk three or four hours a day for water and she was in school, but um, this issue, as you said, it disproportionately affects women and girls, but what it means for girls, because they're often left to do the water collection is they're not in school. Mm-hmm. So I said, wow, you have three—you have found three hours, you know, three or four hours in your day. What, what are you gonna do with all that extra time? You, you have all this time to do homework now. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and kind of snapped back like, I don't need to do homework. I'm the smartest kid in my class. And she said it in that way. That was like, oh yeah, she's, she's the smartest kid in her class. Like I've met that kid. Um, and, uh, I go, all right, hotshot, what are you going to do with your four hours a day that you found now? And she just looked at me dead in the eye and she goes, I'm going to play. And it like, it buckled me because at the time, my oldest daughter was 13 as well. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, what else should a 13 year old kid be doing? Right. It's, You know, so it's 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 another one of those kind of pernicious effects of, you know, uh, of this crisis, which is just it's not just the death and the and the disease and all and all of the very real. It is a life and death issue. A million people a year are dying because they lack access to clean water and sanitation. But it's these incalculable ways in which it affects somebody's life.
0: Well, you know, while I was reading your book, I was also reading another book, which I highly recommend, called Orwell's Roses. It's by Rebecca Solnit. And among other things, she tells the story of George Orwell's life and goes back to a bunch of his essays. And I don't know if you've read a bunch of his essays, but there's one called Why I Write, which really reminded me of your book, where... Orwell talks about the four big motivations for writing. There's ego, aesthetics, history, and purpose, right? a kind of meaning and role for doing this. And he writes that um, we often write to push the world in a certain direction and alter the ideas of the kind of society we should strive for. So when I was reading your book, I thought, ah, this is why they wrote this book. They obviously wrote this for purpose. And so before we close, I'd like to ask both of you to make the pitch People can get overwhelmed, right? They're like, oh, water and sanitation, I'm convinced it's a big issue, but what can I actually do? So what do you want people to know about what they can do to help with this issue? And Gary, let's start with you.
3: Matt and I are donating all of our author proceeds from the book back to water.org. So just a simple act of buying the book, you know, mm-hmm. helps people get water and it helps people to, to understand you know, both the consequences as well as the upsides of having water and how it can change lives. And so that's a big part, you know, of course, you know, we are a nonprofit and we do raise, you know, donations. So any donations are very helpful. A lot of times people have matching funds at their workplace that that can actually help with this as well. But then even moving beyond that, you know, uh, for corporate partners, corporations see this as an opportunity to really look at their Uh, kind of water footprint and kind of their social license to operate in some of these regions. And so we can partner with them to ensure that they are sustainably using water resources in those areas of operation. Water equity funds help millions of people get water. So there's just a lot of ways for, you know, everyone from CEOs listening to this to think about how they can contribute all the way down to somebody who might only be able to give $5. If you if you gave just
2: $5 to water.org, uh, you would be reaching one person on the other side of the world um, with with clean water for life. Um, so, so that's where the $5 number comes from.
0: So if you buy a book, I suppose you're going to reach a, a decent number of people. Well, this has really been a wonderful conversation. I wish we could keep talking, but I'm sure you've both got to get back to installing toilets around the world. And <laughs> we are sadly out of time. So thanks for a great conversation and really for a quite funny and insightful book.
2: Thanks so much, Leah. Thank you, Leah. Take
3: care.
1: And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Gary, Matt, and Dr. Stokes for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.